there are all these different kinds of skills that we have, but we haven't learned how to surface them and articulate them. And that that translation process is something really this this third sector, I think, has has an opportunity to facilitate um, and help 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 learners and workers translate their skills into the language of the marketplace. I'm Jeff Cobb. I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 259 of the Leading Learning Podcast, which features a conversation with Michelle Weiss. This is the second episode in our seven-episode series on the surge of the third sector of education. Michelle Weiss is an author, most recently of Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. She's also an entrepreneur in residence and a senior advisor at Imaginable Futures, a global education initiative exploring how to solve for intergenerational mobility through a two-generation approach that involves early childhood interventions, as well as facilitating more pathways for student parents. In short, Michelle spends her days thinking about how to better prepare working-age adults for the jobs of today and tomorrow. Salisa spoke with Michelle in December 2020. You and I are talking as part of a podcast series that we're doing on the third sector of education, this sector that's made up of providers who serve adult lifelong learners after they've finished their formal degree granting education. So maybe just talk a little bit about where you interact or have interacted with that third sector of education professionally and personally, if you'd like. Yeah, I've had a really... um interesting career where I've gotten to really engage with what you call the third sector from a multitude of stakeholder viewpoints. So I used to actually be a college professor. I worked for an ed tech startup that was helping service members transition out of the military into civilian careers. I worked in a think tank that was devoted to disruptive innovation, Clayton Christensen's theories, and thinking about Uh, people whose alternative to higher education was really nothing at all, Um, then kind of put those theories into practice by building an innovation lab for Southern New Hampshire University, which is a huge online open access institution, Um, and then went on to work for a funder called Strata Education Network and built uh, their Institute for the Future of Work, which was trying to think about our most vulnerable populations and how we take uh, and how we ensure that we don't leave behind sort of a huge swath of working class Americans as we as we build toward the future. Um, so it's been this really interesting space in which uh, I've, I've been able to really work with all of the different kinds of stakeholder groups that are really trying to enable more and different kinds of pathways for very different kind of learners than maybe we were expecting to work with. You know, I think we, we tend to think of those sort of, sort of traditional 18 to 24 year olds, but a lot of my career has really been spent thinking about everyone outside of that group or older than that group. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like you have an amazing breadth and depth of experience with various um, aspects of this third sector of education. And the way we see it, that that sector is made up of many different types of of providers. There's trade and professional associations, there's corporate learning and development, there's academic continuing education, there are 
training companies, there's solo entrepreneurs. And so if you imagine a, a continuum and one end is labeled hodgepodge and the other is labeled partnership, you know, what's the level of awareness that providers have in that third sector of the other types of providers? And, and where on the continuum would you put the third sector? And where on the continuum should we be as the third sector? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And it's something that has been nagging at me for, for many years, just because in a lot of my roles, uh, I've, I've, I've been privileged to sort of sit sometimes in more of a an objective bystander role where I get to kind of assess the landscape of a lot of these different providers. So when I was working with service members, I got a real view into a lot of different online uh, post-secondary education. When I was working for the Christensen Institute, got a lot of insight into all of the for-profit, the alternative learning providers out there, those entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs. And the hardest thing for me to see was the duplication of efforts. There are so many incredible organizations and groups and services out there that are solving for the same problem, sometimes completely overlapping in in their areas of interest, but they have no awareness of some of these other groups that are out there doing the same work. And so I've actually spent a lot of time doing this kind of behind the scenes matchmaking of different you know, entrepreneurs and organizations and trying to pull them together just so that they are aware of one another. And I think this is a this is an issue we have more broadly in this in this sector, which is we have a lot of incredible groups who are building in silos or building in parallel to one another. And even across your first, second and third sectors, right? If you think about K-12 and post-secondary education and, and everything after these are very separate systems that don't do a great job of speaking across those boundaries. And one of the things that we've just realized over time is how we cannot continue to innovate in this way. It's, it's, it's just, it doesn't make sense to constantly reinvent the wheel. And so how do we behave differently? How do we work more as those kinds of partners and coalition partners and, and change our, our, our ways of doing things and make sure that we are functioning more like interdependent systems, things that are inextricably tied to one another. And that's, that's I think, what things like, you know, in, in this particular moment, as we think about the pandemic's role in shaping uh, the economy and, you know, how things lie today, this is the this is the big opportunity ahead is to is to think about how we actually move from those silos to true partnership and coalition building. Well, I think what you said about duplic duplication of effort definitely rings true in this idea that there can be because of the siloed uh, approach um, multiple players really focus on the same type of work and really have no idea <laughs> that they are are duplicating that effort and so this idea of matchmaking of really recognizing interdependency makes a lot of sense now our view at leading learning is that this third sector has been growing in size and importance in the past few decades if you agree with that assessment what do you think's contributing to that growth I think you're right in the sense, if you just look, for instance, at the state of workforce technologies, 
you see, I think it was Learn Launch who estimated that between 2015 and 2018, there were 250 brand new companies that were backed by venture capital, creating an almost $2.9 billion marketplace within just a few years. And so we do see this kind of magnificent growth going on. I think part of the reason we're seeing that is because of the incredible noise in the marketplace. Um, it is Credential Engine who kind of came out with this number that we now have over 730,000 unique credentials just flooding our education and labor markets. And so you would think that this, you know, offers a lot of options for learners, but what it does is it just it just creates so much friction between our job seekers and our companies that are, are seeking to hire talent. Um, it is not necessarily getting any easier. So you see this kind of growth of uh, providers that are trying to create more pre-hire assessments or bring more clarity and transparency to highlighting a person's skills. I think we've realized, you know, as an entire, you know, network of stakeholders that just always relying on a degree as a as a proxy for talent is not sufficient. So you see all these different ways in which innovators and organizations are trying to make more direct connections between job seekers and employers. And, and I think that's where you see this, uh, this tremendous growth happening. So when you think about the third sector, what do you see as some of the major opportunities for players in that sector? One huge opportunity is to think, to reimagine the role of on-the-job training. I think over the last few decades, and Peter Capelli does some good analysis of this, where he counts the number of hours that we used to devote toward providing, you know, engaging our workers in building new skills. And it went from two and a half weeks per year in 1979, all the way down to only 11 hours per year by 1995. And we can only imagine from 1995 to now, how much more that has, that has been reduced. And, and all of that on the job training is not necessarily geared toward training our workers for new and emerging and better jobs. What it is about is more risk mitigation, compliance training, these sorts of boxes that we need to, to check off. And so the real opportunity ahead is to think through how in the world are we going to take our existing workforce, better understand the skills that they bring to the table and help them skill up for the jobs of the future. The way in which we've kind of engaged in the talent wars thus far is just not sustainable. Um, it is, you know, this constant look outside of the company for talent instead of looking inward and trying to assess who we have today right at our fingertips that we can that we can help, you know, acquire the right skills just to make it into those next jobs that we need to fill. So that kind of look internal and a real reassessment of how we think about investing in our incumbent workforce, I think is is a huge opportunity for for this entire space of, you know, entrepreneurs, for organizations, for trade associations to kind of think through how do we do this better. 
So on the flip side of the coin, then, what do you see as the major threats facing the third sector of education? The most critical, I think, limiting factor is that we have not figured out how to how to how to account for time. Uh, we have, I think, if anything, what this pandemic has shown us is how how important it is to be able to buy time to to do other activities. And a lot of folks in our system are not earning a living wage in order to buy services that gain you time back. And I think as you think about, you know, these multi-million, multi-hundred million dollar initiatives within some of these most forward-thinking employers that are thinking about upskilling folks, what they haven't actually solved for is when those workers are actually going to find the time to upskill. I think the the implicit expectation is always that this person is going to go home after work and figure out a time to, to, to build those skills on their own. And it's always this kind of individual burden. We don't figure out ways to carve out time in the flow of the workday to build those skills for our employees. And that really needs to change. It's If we really want to get serious about solving for intergenerational mobility, we really have to think about this issue of time poverty. Time is definitely a limiting factor. It is one that I feel every day <laughs> myself. Um, so when you think about the future of the third sector of education, what do you see? Are you um, anticipating continued growth? Are you um, seeing potential for disruption, whether that's positive or negative disruption, um, waning importance, something else? How would you characterize that future of the third sector? I think we're we're hitting a wall in terms of our traditional ways of doing things. So for quite some time, we have been relying on this phenomenon of up-credentialing, where we keep asking people for degrees. So we put in degree requirements for jobs, for jobs that really never used to require a degree. And over time, those degree requirements have have kind of gone up. Uh, we've been asking for more and more advanced degrees. And and as we can imagine, there just comes a limit to, to how many degrees we can ask for, right? We're moving into sort of master's degree territory when, you know, some of these roles never, never needed a degree in the first place. And so what you're seeing is the lack of signaling power of some of our, our credentials. You know, employers don't know how to sift through their resumes. They don't know how to make sense of, of all these different kinds of, of factors. So that that obviously cannot continue. And so that's why you hear a lot more language these days around this notion of moving away from pedigree or where you learned your knowledge to thinking about skills and moving towards skills-based hiring. And that's partly because we cannot just kind of continue to, to up-credential and we have to get much more precise about skills. Um, and I think uh, the other piece of this that I kind of mentioned before is that we're hitting a wall in terms of um, these kinds of talent wars that we're engaging in where we're always trying to find the sort of specific spot talent that has the precise experience that we are looking for as opposed to um, enabling, you know, their 
existing workforce or pools of talent that they normally wouldn't look to to demonstrate that they can actually um, do do some of this work. So I think uh, I think we're just sort of hitting hitting this really important ceiling or wall where we can't go any further in the, in the in the direction that we're going. And so we really are going to have to rethink our motivations for leveraging these sorts of practices. And to me, it's an exciting shift towards skills-based hiring, but then we need better ways of, of surfacing those skills too. Well, yeah, and I'm hearing in what you're talking about a lot of potential for um, things like, you know, competency-based education. So it really is more about like what the learner can do versus as you were talking about the, the pedigree sort of approach, you know, where it's more about the degree and where it came from to, to potentially be that proxy for, for talent versus actually being able to demonstrate what you know or what you can do as a learner. Um, and I think too, then when you're back to your idea of the limiting factor in time, which of course speaks to, I think, the potential for something like micro learning, if it can be done in a meaningful way to, to really help deliver very targeted content that's going to help with that uh, demands that we all feel on, on our time. If you need to deliver meaningful, targeted learning to your audience, check out our sponsor for this quarter. For nearly 20 years, Blue Sky eLearn has been transforming the way organizations deliver virtual events and educational content. Blue Sky's customized, cutting-edge solutions connect hundreds of organizations to millions of learners worldwide. These include their award-winning learning management system, PATH LMS, webinar and live streaming services for short events to multi-day virtual conferences, and learning strategy and development solutions. These robust, easy-to-manage solutions allow organizations to easily organize, track, and monetize educational content. We're truly grateful to Blue Sky eLearn for helping to make this series possible, and we encourage you to find out more at blueskyelearn.com. Now, back to the conversation with Salisa and Michelle. What words of advice do you have for those in the third sector about what they might be able to do to help them really thrive in that future that 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 will come to be um, and, and this fact, you know, that we're potentially hitting these various walls, what can they do to try to break past that wall and to succeed and thrive? I think one of the core pieces of this shift towards skills-based hiring is a way for us to surface the skills of a job seeker or surface the skills of your workforce. You would be kind of surprised by how many major employers are out there, uh, you know, huge, even tech giants who have hundreds of thousands of workers, and they regularly complain about not being able to understand what precisely their people can do. They have names and job titles, but they don't have that granular understanding of what precisely, you know, what kinds of skills, capabilities, and assets each of those individuals brings to the table. So as a result, they don't know how to look at their existing workforce in order to shape them for the jobs of the future. So a company may have, you know, three or five new strategic goals for 2025 or 2030, and their instinct is to look externally for that precise talent when, in fact, 
there could be hundreds or tens of folks right at their fingertips who are, you know, 70% of the way there with in terms of the kinds of transferable skills they have that they could port over into this new domain, but we just don't have the mechanisms to do that. So there are really exciting innovations and artificial intelligence powered platforms that are trying to do some of this surfacing of skills, trying to illuminate skills gaps for folks as they try to imagine pathways for themselves, um, and also connecting those skills gaps to learning providers in the area or in the region that might be able to help them fill those those gaps. So this this opportunity of of reflecting who these learners are today and and again as we think about more mature learners having to pivot and more mature workers having to transition to new work we not only need that kind of way of surfacing the skills that sound very marketable in the workplace, but we also need a way for job seekers to recognize that all there, there's so much incredible informal learning that happens and that they have these kinds of hidden credentials within that haven't been formally recognized by their degree or some certificate or certification, but they may have acquired through, you know, caring for their children, caring for, you know, someone, uh, an older parent or grandparent, um, or even driving a truck across the country many thousands of times. There are all these different kinds of skills that we have, but we haven't learned how to surface them and articulate them. And that, that translation process is something really this, this third sector, I think, has, has an opportunity to facilitate um, and help, help, help learners and workers translate their skills into the language of the marketplace. It seems like you were talking about uh, difficulty on, on both sides in terms of both the, the employers maybe not being as clear as they could be or should be about the skills needed and then to the, the potential employees um, not being able to not being able to capture their own skills and sort of communicate those to the employer. So it seems like on, on both ends of, of that um, connection and employer and employee that there's, a, there's some work to be done around uh, expressing the skills that are needed and the skills that are there. Yeah, there's just not, there's not a ton of transparency. And even as we think about internal mobility within a company, it's really hard for most workers to understand the clear routes toward advancement. We don't do a great job of even providing those internal mobility pathways. And then, of course, as we think about uh, you know, career trajectories outside of the boundary of a company, but across you know, fields and across uh, different companies and across state lines, we really don't do a great job of uh, making those pathways clear. So there's that's one of the exciting things as we think about big data and harnessing some of this this data is is now we can actually see some of those trajectories and we can start illuminating them a little bit more clearly for job seekers. Now, many learning businesses are focused on their their customers, their members, their learners, and I think that's understandable. Those are the people paying for and accessing their portfolio of offerings. But I know that part of what you're 
interested in and, and passionate about is making education work for learners who are often left behind and left out by traditional approaches and, and traditional players. So would you talk a little bit about non-consumers in the context of lifelong learning? Who are they and, and what might a learning business stand to gain by focusing on non-consumers? Yeah, this term non-consumers is from Clayton Christensen's Clayton Christensen's theories of disruptive innovation. And it's just a term for the people whose alternative is really nothing at all. So just as a really simple example, you know, when Toyota started to come into the American uh, car market, they produced this, this kind of crummy little car called the Corona. And they were not producing it for the existing customers or consumers of cars, you know, they weren't, they weren't trying to get someone who already owned a Cadillac to buy one of these Coronas. These were people whose alternative to a car was really nothing at all. It was walking or riding a bus. And so even though this car was not as high quality as some of the existing options on the market, you know, the folks, these non-consumers were actually perfectly delighted with the quality of these cars because it was better than nothing at all. So as we think about higher education today, it's this fascinating um, sort of phenomenon that's happening where over the last 60 years, 70 years, we've gone from, you know, having about 2000 institutions to at one point over 4700 degree granting institutions. We're now down to about 4300. We don't have we no longer have enough traditional learners to fill those seats. And that number, the number of high school grads kind of moving into post-secondary education has really dropped over time and it's plateauing and it's it's really going to drop dramatically in the mid-2030s. And so as we think about this idea of non-consumers, these are people who might have already gone to college and dropped out, you know, some of the 36 million with some college, no degree. These could be folks who only have a high school degree, um, and, and absolutely no post-secondary education, but there are folks who could really stand to increase their earnings by acquiring some sort of education beyond what they have today. And as we think about non-consumers, our traditional institutions are not doing a great job of inviting those folks in. In fact, when I was at Strata, we did a huge, um, survey of close to 350,000 Americans and in that population we looked at 55,000 learners who had some college and no degree and the majority of those folks actually had no interest in coming back to post-secondary education uh, even though they knew it would help them advance in their work lives and so they they these are the non-consumers we are talking about and so for all the different kinds of organizations that are in this third sector, there's a real opportunity to think about meeting these specific learners where they are. These are not folks who are looking for a bundled four-year experience with a great sports team. These are people who are looking for precise, you know, targeted educational pathways that have signaling power that an employer will understand and know how to make sense of that learning experience. These are short burst you know, human skills and technical skills building programs that move people along very quickly and cost effectively into a much better opportunity. And so that's 
that's how we should be thinking about this population of of folks who whose alternative is nothing at all and who are currently being left behind by the inadequacies of our education and workforce infrastructure. In your most recent book, The Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet, you argue that we need a new learning ecosystem and that ecosystem needs to incorporate five guiding principles. Um, It has to be navigable, supportive, targeted, integrated, and transparent. And you write that, and this is a quote, the connective tissue that unites these five guiding principles is a more robust data infrastructure, end of quote. And so my sense from reading you is that the more robust data infrastructure is really key to getting beyond those silos um, and, and getting to the, that meaningful collaboration in the third sector of education. Am, am I reading you correctly? Does that seem like a fair uh, assessment uh, in terms of the, the role of that data infrastructure? Yes, it is a foundational element to thinking about a better functioning ecosystem. And my use of this term ecosystem is is very deliberate. Uh, if you just think about, you know, a forest, we, we tend to look at the things that are above ground. What we fail to notice is how interconnected and interwoven everything is underground. And there's this almost incredible kind of intelligent design and communicationing happening through the root system. And as we think about our current education and workforce infrastructure, we are nowhere close to this kind of intelligence that occurs because of this kind of communication. Or if we even compare, you know, where we are with groups like Amazon or Tencent or Netflix, they have these closed loops of data where they can continuously get smarter about our behaviors, our actions, our clicks. In higher education and workforce, None of our systems speak to one another. They are all deeply siloed. Some of them are illegal to access because of our, you know, federal ban on the student unit record. There are all kinds of things that get in the way of connecting important data that would help all of us make better decisions in the future. And so one fundamental aspect to bringing people together around a shared common agenda, like reskilling folks who have been um, hurt by the COVID-19 pandemic, is you need to all be looking at that shared sheet of music, you know, that, that, that same set of data. And so as sort of unsexy as it may be, this piece of connecting data and doing the important work of plumbing and creating data trust and data infrastructure is, is, is deeply important. And so you know, groups like BrightHive out there that are doing this data infrastructure work are foundational for for all of us to build these new coalitions that will behave differently in the future. And so because you do make a really strong case for the need to break down these silos, to have um, this ecosystem where we really are able to take advantage of uh, the data from sort of one provider and, and feed that into what another provider is able to offer to a particular learner. I mean, do you have any advice uh, on concrete actions that a learning business might take to help bring about that less siloed third sector, you know, whether that's through exploring formal 
partnerships or data trusts or, or something else? Yes, I think uh, I, I'm lucky enough to serve on the board of a group called Skill Up. And it is a coalition of a bunch of different funders out there, as well as alternative learning providers, as well as open access institutions. Um, and different groups are bringing to, to bear stuff that they have been building, but they realize that alone it's not going to be as powerful as actually bringing it in, into this sort of shared platform experience. And so, you know, I think the... The exciting thing about the urgency around reskilling people and helping them survive during this 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 real, you know, challenge to to our our economy is that we've realized that we cannot just keep doing what we've been doing. That we we do need to alter our behavior and 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 create the sort of shared repository or shared commons. So I think that is that is one step. Is you know. It's, and it's it's a really difficult mindset shift, I think, for a lot of organizations to move from being leaders in the space or thought leaders in the space to, you know, being servant leaders and, you know, maybe even nameless or pushing things from, you know, and not getting the kind of recognition that they're that they're used to getting. This is a very different kind of way of engaging in the space, but it's it's clear that we cannot continue to make all of this burden of skill development the onus of the individual. Right now, it's so it's so clearly sort of unjust in the way that all of us have to navigate a job transition alone and kind of scramble and fumble our way through it. There There isn't a clear way to move seamlessly from one job to the next. And we have to, we really have to alter this because the number of job changes that we can expect in the future are only going to increase. You know, even early baby boomers are experiencing 12 job changes by the time they retire. So all of us can expect maybe 20 or 30 job transitions in the future. And we all know how difficult or sometimes how serendipitous it feels to land a job. Uh, we need to make that less idiosyncratic and more you know, less the exception to the rule and more the rule, like it's something that is clearly easily accessible, seamless feeling and understandable. So it is hard for lifelong learners to, to understand and navigate the options. You know, you've say there's a lot of noise in this marketplace. Um, so it's hard to figure out which options are trustworthy. Um, and it seems like we're missing, to use some of your terminology, these easy, obvious on and off ramps. So what I wanted to ask you is, do you think an individual learning business has a responsibility or an opportunity to help learners navigate the broader third sector? And, and what might that help look like? Yeah, I, I do think it is it is high time that the onus spreads a little bit more fairly beyond just the individual job seeker onto our education providers who need to have some more skin in the game and need to have some responsibility for the outcomes of their learners. And also, you know, the onus of training. Employers cannot continue to sort of retreat from training and expect these fully oven ready, you know, 
you know, people who are ready to contribute on day one, there has to be some shared responsibility there. Um, one of the, one of the, one of the opportunities to solve in this space is if we really do want to give more people, especially folks who may not have a traditional post-secondary degree, if we want to give them more of a shot, a, a fair shot in the labor market, we need to figure out ways to mitigate risk for employers who do actually want to, you know, widen their talent funnels and also diversify their talent pools. Because if you actually do remove those degree requirements, you get to a much more diverse learner and worker population. But there needs to be a way for the employer to sort of test out um, and, and allow for these workers and learners to prove what they know. So there's really exciting developments going on in, in different kinds of outsourced apprenticeship models where, you know, say you go to one of these short on-ramp programs like Perscolis or JBS or Tectonic or IC Stars, and you gain some skills in cybersecurity or advanced manufacturing or healthcare, a lot of these groups that are building these, these alternative on-ramps are partnering directly with employers so that they can kind of let the employer test out these folks who are newly trained to see whether this person will truly be able to do the work. And so what happens is these on-ramps actually hire their participants as employees. And then the, the, their client employers get to test out these, these new candidates and see, oh my goodness, they can. They can do everything that I need them to do. Um, so this really does uh, allow for that de-risking of a really challenging hiring practice um, where, you know, so many things can go wrong because we're, we're, we're just kind of like, you know, holding our finger to the wind, praying that we're, we're, we're hiring the right talent versus performance-based or mastery-based demonstration of, of those skills. So I think that kind of validation of skills is, is just a real opportunity for the different kinds of providers in this space to come together to, to, to behave differently. If we want to sort of be action-oriented in terms of diversifying and making our hiring more equitable, we need we need some of these mechanisms in place. Well, and you are touching on something I wanted to ask about, which is this uh, idea that if we move to more blinded, more skills based hiring practices, that that's going to help uh, organizations really deliver uh, on the promise of DEI initiatives, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and really kind of live that out in a practical way. And so I'm wondering. How how providers in the third sector who want to help that hiring be as unbiased as possible, you know, what can they do and, and how can they help avoid having, you know, their credential, whether it's a certificate or a certification or a digital badge or, or whatever, you know, become like so many degrees are today, just that proxy signal that doesn't necessarily provide an accurate view of the holder's ability or, or competence or knowledge. Yeah, I think it, it comes down to offering different kinds of ways for job seekers to prove what they know. So there are interesting kinds of new developments going on in AR and VR virtual, you know, simulations where people can demonstrate through these simulated environments that they 
that they can actually do this, the work that, that is needed. I think um, there are also different kinds of pre-hire assessments that are, that are promising that really help us better understand a person's curiosity or critical thinking processes. You know, there are groups like Embellus who sort of throw you into a natural simulated environment and something dies and your job is to figure out what happened and you know all of your different kinds of clicks are being assessed and there is this sort of psychometrician validated work happening on the back end that that gives us a better perspective on people's problem solving skills as an example um but you know the the challenge is <laughs> the number of pre-hire assessments that are out there today are it's pretty incredible. I mean, it's just kind of become the wild west. And so it's really hard for hiring managers and employers to to make sense of, of you know, what is truly valid and, and what is not. It's also hard for employers to articulate exactly the skills they want for the future. Some of them say they need this sort of whole laundry list of technical skills. Others say, no, I just need someone with these basic human you know, workforce competencies like teamwork, teamwork, collaboration, critical thinking. We kind of use these words often and frequently, but we don't have a lot of ways to measure those those qualities. And so another sort of piece that we need to figure out is trying to get more researchers and academics also involved in the basic learning science around these principles that we say are so critical for the future of work. So it's, it's sort of this whole mixture of things that needs to happen. We have some promising kind of seeds of innovation budding on the margins, but we don't have a systematic way of, um, you know, of, of, of being able to identify that talent. And so without recourse to anything truly reliable yet, we're just sort of sticking to the old ways of doing things. Well, one of the things I really admire about long life learning is that it really does make this case for not sticking with the old ways of doing things and pointing out some opportunities for where things could change in a meaningful way to really work better for everyone, for the the learners, the um, employers, um, and just society in general. So I really appreciate that work. Michelle Weiss is author of Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet, which is recommended reading for learning businesses and which you can find through Amazon and other online booksellers. You can find Michelle online at riseanddesign.io, and you can connect with her on Twitter or LinkedIn. Her handle is rwmichelle on both platforms. You can find show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 259, along with a transcript and a variety of resources related to my conversation with Michelle. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 259, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. To make sure you don't miss the remaining episodes in this series, we encourage you to subscribe. And subscribing also helps us get some data on the impact of the podcast. We'd be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Jeff and I personally appreciate it, and reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review and rating. 
And we encourage you to learn more about the sponsor for this series by visiting blueskyelearn.com. Lastly, please spread the word about Leading Learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 259, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.